This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at confusion and concern about how to mark four years since the atrocity of March the 15th in Christchurch and why some say the media seems to have lost interest, not just in marking the day, but also in the issues arising from it that have yet to be resolved or even fully confronted. What have we achieved? What have we changed? What can we do to mitigate such thing from happening again in the future? That's, that's what's important to me. But first, we look at how the media reacted to more government policies piled on the so-called bread-and-butter bonfire. It's popular with the public, the media tell us. But is it? It is on. 215 days until the election. 30-odd weeks for the political parties to convince the country they have the answers. And boy, do people want solutions. With climate change, tough labour markets and that cost-of-living crisis we've been discussing already this morning, front and centre. TBNZ breakfast show host Matty McLean there talking about the upcoming election as if the actual campaign was already underway. And when it does come, people will indeed want solutions to those big problems he mentioned there from our political parties. And more on that in a minute. But the reason he was talking about that in the first place last Tuesday was TBNZ's latest political opinion poll released just the night before. So what do the latest poll numbers tell us about where we're heading come October 14th selection? Political editor uh, Jessica Much Mackay is with us now. Morena. Morena, Mary. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) really interesting poll numbers. Now, the political party support results were not actually all that interesting. As with previous polls, it was neck and neck between the left bloc and the right one in this poll, and not much movement among the minnows. But nevertheless, TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay was still pumped up about the popularity contest between the two leaders called Chris when she did the big reveal on One News last Monday. Chris Hipkins has gone from zero to top of the leaderboard. Look at how he leapfrogged after becoming Prime Minister. Christopher Luxon shrinking in comparison. But have a look at this comparison between Christopher Luxon here in blue and John Key, who of course went on to be Prime Minister after this. And Mr Luxon is tracking in the wrong direction. One hour after that, Newstalk ZB reported those results like this. The latest One News Kantar poll makes grim reading for opposition leader Chris Luxon. His preferred Prime Minister rating has plunged 5 points to 17%, while Labour leader Chris Hipkins has risen to 27. And an hour later, like this. And there's further trouble for the struggling Chris Luxon. Chris Hipkins is up four points to 27% as preferred Prime Minister, while Luxon has dropped five points to 17%. But one thing that really is struggling, but not mentioned in any report of that TBNZ One News Cantar poll, was the preferred Prime Minister question itself. Now this time, the option picked by far more people polled than either Chris was don't know. And when you add in those who said no one or straight up refused to say... Just shy of four out of every ten people polled didn't or wouldn't give a preference for Prime Minister. By contrast, just 13% of people in this poll failed to pick a party that they'd vote for at election time, possibly because we do pick parties for that when the time comes, along with a local candidate. But we don't vote for a Prime Minister. Now here at Media Watch we do wonder how many more will not pick a preferred Prime Minister in their polls before they stop asking the question or reporting those results as if they were really significant. Though that of course would pull the stats out of their reports on the Chris versus Chris struggle that the media really seem to relish, much more indeed than the voters. However, between the 4th and the 8th of March, TVNZ's pollsters at Kantar did also ask people some questions about what we think beyond which party or Prime Minister we prefer, 
And, as Hayden Donnell now reports, this week those were a far more interesting sign of the political times. Is this actually... You said you're focused on the bread and butter issues. How much is a slab of of bread and a slab of butter? A slab? Or it depends how you define a, a slab. Of, a if, you, if, you go to the, if you go to Pack and Save in Upper Hutt to buy a loaf of Mollenberg um, toast bread, you'd be paying around $4, maybe $4.50. Um, if you're looking for a block of butter, it'd be around $7. Can I give you others? Uh, uh, two litres of milk? You might be paying about $4.50 for two litres of milk, depending on whether you're buying a, a branded version or a no-frills version. I Any others? Clearly expecting that question. Um, I do my own supermarket shopping, and so I can tell you these things. That's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins batting away a reporter's inquiry about the actual cost of bread and butter and milk and more. Hipkins was getting that gotcha question because wheat and dairy products have been, at least metaphorically, a kind of north star for his government's policy agenda. When he announced his cabinet, the press release said it would be focused on bread and butter issues. When he announced a cost-of-living package, it was bread and butter support. The relentless focus on supermarket staples hasn't pleased everyone, especially in the media. Here's what Newsroom's National Affairs editor Sam Sushdeva recently tweeted about the phrase. These constant references to bread and butter issues from the government are going to turn me into a celiac. Come up with a new line, please. I cannot hear this 100 more times between now and the election. It's a credit to Sushdeva's undying optimism that he only believes he'll hear those words a hundred more times before the election. Saying bread and butter is Hipkins' bread and butter. Just in this segment alone, I've already used those words seven times. But bread and butter, that's eight times now, isn't the only catchphrase getting repeated in the media this week. On Monday, Hipkins ditched a second tranche of government initiatives, including a so-called cash-for-clunkers scheme and what he dubbed a policy reprioritisation. The media, however, has found a much more exciting name for it. Here's One News. To pay for this, the government's had a second policy bonfire with eight casualties, one of the biggest, a vehicle scrappage scheme. It was to replace gas guzzlers with clean cars. And here's News Hub. The bonfire of the policies has grown into a towering inferno. Say what you like about setting your own policies on fire and watching them burn in a towering inferno. It's apparently popular. Almost immediately after Hipkins was done incinerating the latest list of Labour's former ideas, One News broadcast a poll showing the party positioned to win a third term. Despite the poll taking place before the most recent bonfire, the Herald's editorial team confidently linked its results to the policy immolation in a piece headlined, Hipkins' bonfire of the priorities gives Labour a boost in the polls. Over on Today FM, afternoon host Lloyd Burr called the bonfire a smart, if cynical strategy. And it's pretty smart politics from Hipkins, but I guess one could argue that it is a bit of sellout politics, yeah? He's selling out on things that Labour believes in, just so they can retain power. The political commentator Bryce Edwards put a different spin on things, writing that the policy burn-off marked a return to working-class politics for Labour. Under Jacinda Ardern, there was a party and government focused on the voters and ideologies of Liberal Greylin and Wellington Central. Now, under Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, Labour has a laser-like focus directed at the working-class politics of places like West Auckland and the Hutt Valley.
To illustrate that, Edwards pointed to results from the One News poll which showed 48% of respondents listed the cost of living as their number one issue, with climate change coming in second at just 12%. These commentators' near-unanimous conclusion was that cutting climate initiatives is wildly popular with median voters. But perhaps Wellington Central and Grey Lynn are a bit more populous than we thought because other data from the same poll called that consensus into question. When One News asked people whether they wanted the government to act with more urgency on climate change, 54% said yes, while 27% said it should stick to its plans from before the latest policy bonfire, which of course included the now scrapped clean car upgrade and the introduction of safer speed limits on much of the state highway network. In other words, the government currently setting fire to several of its highest profile climate initiatives is rapidly gaining popularity with the voters who say they actually do want more climate action. That apparent contradiction could be down to the fact that voters just didn't believe the scrap policies were effective. Hitkins himself has said schemes like the clean car upgrade wouldn't have made much of a difference to emissions anyway. Transport Minister Michael Wood got this response when he made the same claim on RNZ's checkpoint earlier this week. And so some of the policies today that we said we're not proceeding with, the clean car upgrade and social leasing, for example, they were policies that did have good outcomes, but actually the, uh, the impact on emissions is actually likely to be relatively limited on the whole. So and why were you doing them in the first place if they had a limited because, effect on emissions? Because they had, because they had other benefits um, that could come from them. There's also the fact that transport, as economists often say, is in the emissions trading scheme, which should, in theory, reduce its carbon output over time, even without subsidies and interventions like the ones Labour just got rid of. Another reason, though, could be the gap between how voters, informed by the media, perceive climate action in the abstract, and how they respond when the government actually suggests tangible solutions. Our media organisations like to talk about how seriously they're taking climate change, signing up to initiatives like Covering Climate Now. But when the rubber meets the road and authorities attempt to implement some of the emissions-reducing interventions recommended by the IPCC and others, the commentary often turns a lot more sour. Here are some examples. This is AM host Ryan Bridge on building more cycling infrastructure just last week by not fixing a pothole and building a cycleway, you're not stopping China from polluting the planet. So, so this is the argument that they're, that they're going to have, they're going to run into, I think, at the election, is people will go, well, yes, I want to do something and, and you know, we need to do something, but now here, my road, this street... Here's RNZ's morning report on a plan to intensify housing inside existing city limits in 2021. Well, householders face losing... More than a billion dollars worth of sunlight and views under radical housing intensification law changes. And here's Mike Hosking of News Talk ZB on efforts to reduce farming emissions, also in 2021. Land use, production volumes, climate change, soil issues, all the stuff that's being heaped on the farmer and farmers at the moment is making life harder and harder. In other words, the government is killing the golden goose. Over at his Substack page, The Car Car This Week, commentator Bernard Hickey pointed to a gap between our climate ambitions and what's politically palatable, arguing the government is keeping debt low to appeal to suburbanite property owners, even if it means doing less to curb emissions. And what we have was a promise from a government to save for a rainy day. The rainy day arrived 
and then it said, actually, we're not going to spend the money. We're going to save even more for some other rainy day in future. And we're going to do that by not spending money on the thing that might reduce the number and the violence of the rainy day in future by reducing emissions. It's not just the government prioritising the concerns of a median voter who lives in a detached single-storey house in the suburbs, though. Despite regular proclamations on the urgency of addressing climate change, it's often the media as well. Maybe there are some good intentions at the root of the preference for so-called bread-and-butter policies. They can be nourishing, especially in a cost-of-living crisis. But it may be hard to fully enjoy the meal if the world is slowly turning into something resembling a bonfire and not the sort that's made of policy. Hayden Donnell reporting there on what the media dubbed a policy bonfire, apparently popular in the polls, even though the latest one showed people actually approved of the climate change policies that had just gone up in flames. Well, that was a call to prayer, or Adan, broadcast by several radio stations last Wednesday to mark the fourth anniversary of the March 15th, 2019 terrorist attack on the Al Noor Mosque and the Linwood Mosque in Christchurch, in which 51 people lost their lives. Now this year the anniversary was pretty low-key with few public events and the government backing no official commemoration other than inviting radio stations to play the Adan on the day amid reports that this was the way the families of some of the victims and survivors had wanted it. But there was also concern from the Muslim community about a lack of interest in marking the anniversary and as Hayden Donnell now reports, that also extended to the news media. Front of me, people is dying everywhere. What I'm here, people, is just they are on their, their last moment and they pray. And I did pray lots too. Please, Allah, forgive me. That's Tamil Atachuju, who was shot nine times in the March 15 terror attack. He was speaking to Stuff for the series Nine Bullets, released on the first anniversary of the 2019 shootings at the El Noor and Linwood Mosques in Christchurch. Nine Bullets was one of many special features and documentaries produced by our media to mark March 15 in 2020. TV1 aired We Are One, a documentary following six of the victims' families through their first year after the attacks. The Herald ran The Ripple Effect, a five-part digital series by journalist Kurt Beyer. This year, the anniversary of March 15 was a much more muted affair in our media. There was little new coverage from our biggest online news site, Stuff in the Herald. They both republished stories they'd done back in 2020. The Herald's print edition didn't carry a story to mark the anniversary, though it printed a cartoon by Rod Emerson which was devoted to remembering our 51 brothers and sisters. Meanwhile, March 15 wasn't mentioned anywhere on the front page of Christchurch's daily paper The Press, though it did find space to point to a story from its life section about cooking with garlic. 
The only stories the paper did carry on the terrorist attack that killed 51 people in its city were on pages 5 and 8. The government echoed the media's understated response to the worst terrorist attack on New Zealand's soil. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins sent a personal message to the victims and their families, but he didn't mark the day with an official event or statement. A spokesperson for Hipkins said his response was tailored to respect the wishes of victims' families who'd told the government they wanted to commemorate the day privately. It's possible several media outlets' coverage, or lack thereof, was informed by those same concerns. But it's also clear survivors and family members wanted more national attention on the anniversary. Stuff published a story by Glenn McConnell late on March 15, focusing on a call to create a nationwide commemoration of March 15 from three widows of men killed in the attack. The widows were concerned it took just a year for New Zealand to, in their words, forget the horror of 2019. One news reporter, Thomas Mead, who covered the shootings on the day they took place and in the years following, quoted members of victims' families who'd expressed similar sentiments. Some are telling us that they are now starting to feel forgotten and that that initial outpouring of love and support they felt after the attacks is starting to wane with the passing of time. On TVNZ's Breakfast, the Fulbright scholar Guled Meyer echoed that, saying Muslim people might not have a single unified opinion on how to mark the anniversary, but nobody wants it to be forgotten. Even though there are different approaches or ways that we see this within the Muslim community, how that could be achieved, one thing is clear, we don't want the events of March 15th to ever be forgotten. Hmm. No one is saying that this should not be recognized as a national day of significance in our cultural calendar of events. Um, you know, the last thing that we want is to be able to move on and just forget. We already feel as though we have been forgotten about. And this is Aya El-Umari, who lost her brother Hussein in the attack, also talking on TVNZ's breakfast about how she wants the government and the media to treat the anniversary. The general consensus is just because we don't want a government-led annual event doesn't mean the conversation shouldn't happen. Um, and so there needs to be a discussion that is sort of like a look back on the last year. What, has, what have we achieved? What have we changed? What can we do to mitigate such thing from happening again in the future? That's, that's what's important to me. Even if the media didn't want to focus directly on the victims, other story angles relating to the attack were on offer. One of those, the ongoing and rising amounts of online hate still directed at Muslims, was covered by Bridie Witten at Stuff. Other potential topics were less canvassed. For instance, many of the people who lost loved ones on March 15 or even witnessed the attack still aren't able to get counselling sessions funded by ACC. The Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet is meant to provide six monthly updates on its progress implementing the recommendations of a Royal Commission of Inquiry into the March 15 attacks. Its last report was issued in July 2022 and its latest one is overdue. Atachuju, who was speaking at the top of this segment, delivered a talk on March 15 at the site of the World Peace Bell in Christchurch. So far it hasn't been covered. Mavash Ikram has worked as a producer for NewsHub and now RNZ's First Up. She spoke to me about how the media could work better to cover the continuing fallout from March 15 and to make sure its victims don't feel forgotten. Kia ora Mavash and welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, salam alaikum. What did you think of the way the media and New Zealand as a whole marked the anniversary of March 15 this year? What coverage? 
I guess that's the question. Was there enough attention on it? I am from the community, but I'm also a journalist. So the coverage was nowhere near enough. So I do wonder what the news meetings would have been like. Maybe we need to move away from these 12-month commemorations and have it as part of the news cycle. Because that is what I've heard from some journalists. It came through from Labour ministers. They said, oh, well, it's not really Muslim tikanga to have these yearly commemorations. Chris Hipkins said he was respecting the wishes of the victims' families who wanted to commemorate privately. Is that a fair interpretation from these journalists and these politicians? So it is not my job to decide what the government does. It is my job as a journalist to ask why the government didn't do certain things. So I, that is where I think the media missed it. As a Muslim, I can tell you we don't mark tragedies because we don't want to dwell on them and we don't want to re-traumatise ourselves. But as the media, not every story has to be about the victims. I want to know, as the general public, how safe is a mosque now? How safe is a temple? How safe is a synagogue? How safe is a church? How safe is a marae? How safe is any place of worship? I want to know how far we've moved on the Christchurch call. I want to know why the Department of Internal Affairs released its transparency report on the 16th of March, and that is a damning report into online hate. I have spoken to a 13-year-old who told me in tears that she's sick of being called a terrorist every day. This is a conversation I had three weeks ago. It seems like there's some confusion in the media between maybe what is a cultural practice of not commemorating anniversaries per se and not wanting attention brought to this act and this uh, attack, the horrors of it and the ongoing... Uh, impacts of it. And I agree. Look, it's important sometimes to go back to the victims when they have, you know, they have become empowered because that does make them look stronger. What have you done? Have you got a degree? And are you driving now? All that sort of stuff. You can go back and ask them that. But the harder angle is, are we asking enough questions of the government? One of the questions that we need to ask is have journalists got enough of a relationship with the Muslim community? And that is not their job. That is not the community's job. That is our job to build those bridges. And if those people have gone quiet on us, then what have we done? Did we burn them? It was a big moment of self-reflection after March 15 for the media. And I think collectively we said we have not established these connections with the Muslim community. There was a Back then, there was a determination that we would address that. Do you think that we have? Look, as a Muslim journalist, I am often called upon to, on March 15th to do stuff, and I happily do it. But I found, I reckon this is something that journalists all need to share. I'm sorry, and no, you have not maintained those relationships. What happened? Where are those people that, that you talked to? Where is the family of the little Somali boy? That boy would have been seven years old today. He would have been at school. You talked so much, tears and everything. And why aren't we talking to that boy's family now? Why is it that they talk to us then, but not now? 
look, we've had a tough time after 2019. We've had COVID. And then we had, um, you know, the floods. I get that. And we are stretched to the max in our newsrooms. I get that totally. But that is no excuse. Let's let's unpack this. So the March 15th and the way it's been covered is not very different from how we remember the Christchurch earthquake, how we remember Pike River, how we remember, um, I guess, the White Island tragedy, the Lynn Mall attacks. The difference, I guess, between some of the other tragedies, yeah. like the Christchurch earthquake or yeah. White Island or something, is, is there's very little that the media can do to prevent yeah. another one of those. Yes. And the media does have a role in addressing prejudice, xenophobia that Muslims experience. And does that create more of an imperative to keep the heat on this issue? I would disagree that the media has a role in preventing an attack. The media definitely has a role in questioning whether we've done enough to prevent another attack. Yes, we cannot let it fade. And the Muslim angle is not the only angle. The same thinking and ideology that went into that massacre, those people had the same kind of hatred for Māori, the same kind of hatred for other people of colour, the same kind of hatred for Jews. In the aftermath of March 15, there was a collective... Uh, since that we had underestimated the danger posed by these online places where people are radicalised online, those same issues, our media coverage of them, we don't seem as concerned as we were back then. Have we kind of let that go off the boil? Absolutely. Let's look at the Lynn Mall attack and the guy who was behind it. He was also radicalised online same thing with the Christchurch terrorist. So all of a sudden, because we've had these two big events, that hatred has not gone away. And while online is is sort of this mass platform where we think people are going and, 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 you know, having these conversations or getting radicalised, the anti-Muslim hate speech, anti-Brown rhetoric is on our streets. I wear the headscarf. Someone told me I was a foreign bitch. Someone told me I couldn't, uh, maybe if I took that thing off my head, I'd see better. So, and all the, well, when when the person told me to take my headscarf off, I had my toddler in my car. In 2021, Huda al-Jama in um, Otago Girls High School, she had her hijab pulled off. So it's not just online. The Muslim community, especially Muslim women, had been warning that there's going to be something. There's going to be something. Look, it's happening. It's happening. And it was a long time coming when March 15th happened. There is nothing I have as an assurance, as a Muslim, that another attack is not going to happen. Notwithstanding any issues that they may have about different practices when it comes to commemoration, what should the media have done better as a whole? First of all, yeah, one or two victim stories are great in terms of how they've moved on. I think it's time that uh, national correspondents and political correspondents stand up and they ask, what are we doing to address the hate that is on our streets and that's on our online platforms? Um, And can March 15 be a focal point for that kind of coverage? Absolutely. I mean, because that's when a huge tragedy happened 
And that can be sort of, as we call it in the media, a peg. So let's get in there. Maybe a question we can ask is, what are we teaching our children about this? How will this be covered in the New Zealand histories curriculum? Just because the families don't mark it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And mind you, they do mark it. They just mark it in private. They don't want you to forget about it. Forgetting means we didn't learn any lessons. What white supremacist organizations are we monitoring now? Or are we saying there are none? I'm asking the media to build relationships with the Muslim community so you've got stories all year round. If we do not build bridges now, we are going to create distrust in various communities. And we cannot afford to have distrust of the media within our ethnic communities. That was Mavash Ikram, producer on RNZ's early morning show First Up and formerly a producer at News Hub for the project on TV Channel 3. And there she was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. The Friday before last, those listening in to Today FM after the midday news heard a surprising announcement from co-host Leah Parnapa. On our program, me and Miles, we made some comments regarding the LGBTQI plus community. Now, we made comments regarding pronouns and inclusivity that we now recognise were inexcusable, inappropriate and deeply offensive to members of the rainbow community. We are deeply, deeply sorry for any distress that we may have caused. And that didn't sound good, considering that today FM's owner, MediaWorks, only last year completed a comprehensive and expensive review of the company's workplace culture that had been sparked in part by reputationally damaging on-air outbursts of talk radio hosts on matters of race and gender and identity. And after Leah Parnipa's mea culpa, co-host Miles Davis added this. Our comments came from ignorance rather than malice and we are intending to get um, undergo rainbow tick training, and I'm looking forward to that because I need to understand these things. So what did they say that might have been so ignorant and offensive that they would have to be so sorry about it on their very next show? Well, Media Watch wasn't listening on that day, and that show is not in the program's podcast feed. But last Wednesday, Stuff's Melanie Early filled in the blanks. Now, this story said that Leah Parnapa had told listeners she didn't buy into this bullshit about the term pregnant people. This is not a sensible world anymore, she reportedly said. And Miles Davis then went on to say this pronoun cobblers was driving him nuts, prompting Leah Parnipa to chime in that she didn't understand pronouns either. And... Sometimes I think this is how I'm going to lose my job, because I would refuse to read out the words pregnant people. And Miles Davis then picked up the ball and ran with it by saying the pair were like suicide bombers. When it comes to that, we'll sacrifice ourselves to make a point. But a day later, apparently he was no longer quite so willing to die explosively on that hill after all. We are sorry, we are better than this, and we hope you accept our apology, which is heartfelt, sincere and genuine, because it really is. And that's a pretty comprehensive about-face just 24 hours after the on-air comments in question. And their boss at the station, Dallas Gurney, told Stuff that rainbow training would begin right away. But listeners didn't have to wait long for another outrage-inducing outburst elsewhere on the talk radio dial this week. On News Talk ZB on Monday, Kerry Woodham told listeners that crime was almost out of control now here in New Zealand. Oh, hello, is that me? 
It is, if you're Angela. Yes, yes it oh, is. Sorry. Yes, sorry. Yeah, hi. Now, Angela said she was a first-time caller and a middle-aged, middle-class registered nurse, and she said that stopping crime at the source was the answer. Why don't we hear general people on the radio or politicians saying that actually we've got to stop breeding unwanted, vulnerable babies? It's as simple as that. Unsuitable parents having more kids than was good for them, for the kids themselves and for taxpayers in the country has long been a talkback radio staple. So no surprise really that Kerry Woodham told Angela this. It's going wrong right at that level. It is, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. But after that, Angela got a bit more ethnically specific when she moved on to this. I don't mean to say look at China, but it did did sort out the overpopulation. Now the social welfare merits of the Chinese Communist Party's former family planning policy is a whole other topic, and it led Angela to this. It won't get like that. If we just if we just breed out the undesirables, you know, um, oh, I don't want to sound supremacist or racist or, or um, I'm not, that's not what I'm meaning. Um, just simply the root of the problem is that there are too many kids raised now that there's no care given to them. There's mm. no education given to them. So what choice do they have? She wound up her call to Kerry Woodham. If I'm going to take your tax money to support me and my children, how about encouraging those kids that, They've got to give back. They're going to be, um, we're going to raise them to be nurses and doctors. That's what we're going to do. If they do raise more nurses and doctors, hopefully they're not those who also believe, like Angela, in breeding out the undesirables. Now, when Angela said that, it did bother some who heard it and then posted the audio of it online. And that day later on Facebook, Kerry Woodham told her followers she has now quit social media because of... Those who read a headline or listen to a 30-second clip and decide to be angry and appalled without reading the article or listening to the show, I'm not going to be used by people who have their own agenda for inciting anger or by social media for clicks. As we've just heard, Angela the nurse went on for a lot more than 30 seconds. And after the ad break following Angela's call, Kerry Woodham came back with this. News talks, there'd be a lot of texts in support um, of Angela. What is wrong with saying raise expectations? Well, there's nothing wrong with that as such, though breeding out undesirables and holding up China's one-child policy as a solution to crime do have ethical and human rights downsides definitely worth pointing out at the very least, especially as Kerry Woodham carried on after that talking like this. But there are opportunistic swine and ferals who will go so far as to book an Airbnb so they can rob and burgle at will. Social media is not fun anymore, Kerry Woodham complained in her farewell Facebook post this week. But talk radio isn't much fun either for those who aren't engaged by dehumanising dismissals of people as without worth or hope, or, in the case of Today FM last week, dismissing people and identities the hosts now say they don't understand and don't wish to offend any longer. This week, for a while, it looked like the jobs of the top bosses at the BBC were in jeopardy, along with the reputation of the world's biggest broadcaster, all thanks to their reaction to a single social media musing from a former footballer who happens to host one of their sports shows, and that left some old heads in UK news shaking their old heads in disbelief. There are some days when I just honestly have to throw up my hands and confess I don't understand anymore. I don't get it. 
I looked at how that was resolved, for now at least, in this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday night here on RNZ National. If you missed Midweek Media Watch this week, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. And we'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch after the 10pm news next Wednesday night, and back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.